dear listeners, Happy New Year. Thank you for returning to the Newsel Letter. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I have a more spontaneous presentation today. Today I want to go through a recent letter exchange that I've had in the literature regarding the topic of female representation as participants in exercise and sports science research. So I have written and discussed um, this topic before. This is an update on the topic because of a recent letter exchange that was uh, published in the Journal of Applied Physiology, and I was involved in that exchange. So what happened is um, last year, in the Journal of Applied Physiology, a group of about 13 uh, female researchers, uh, they got together and they wrote a paper uh, about female underrepresentation in exercise science research. So what they did was they went through um, a couple of different journals, uh, issues published in 1991 and in 2021, and they tallied up the number of male and female participants in the studies that they found in those journals. Um, And what they uh, tended to find was that there were more uh, male-only studies than female-only studies, and more male participants, particularly in 1991, although it's not um, uh, as much of an issue anymore. So the whole um, idea of the paper was to essentially demonstrate female underrepresentation in exercise science research. We've seen a number of these papers published now, and what happens is each group of researchers finds their own sort of niche area uh, to look at or niche uh, group of journals to to have a look at. Now, um, I wrote, along with my colleague Rob Diener from Grand Valley State University in the psychology department there, Rob and I wrote a letter um, to the journal about the paper. So the data in the paper are what they are. So if you go through and you just count number of participants and you've got this percentage female, this percentage male, that just is what it is. No questions, no worries there. Where the worries come in is in regard to the interpretation of the results. And so Uh, in the discussion of the paper and the way the paper was framed was that this was, again, representative of some sort of uh, bias or discrimination uh, against women. So the idea being there's more sort of structural or systemic factors or bias or discrimination that is what creates uh, these situations where you have more male than female participants. In their discussion, there was no discussion about uh, the recent survey study that myself and Rob Diener published last year, which was a survey where we asked uh, groups of, or we asked uh, men and women about their interest and willingness to participate in exercise and sports science studies. And what we found was that there were significant differences between men and women. So we asked them about um, specific uh, tests or procedures that they might want to do while they're in the lab. So, you know, how willing are you to 
run on a treadmill until exhaustion? How interested are you to have your leg strength tested or your vertical jump or your sprint time? Um, how interested are you to participate in a strength training uh, program that goes for several weeks or a stretching or a yoga program that goes for several weeks? And then we also asked about the factors that they consider when deciding whether or not they want to participate in a research study. And so what we found were a bunch of differences between men and women, where in general, uh, men tended to be more interested and willing to participate in these studies, and in particular were more interested in doing a lot of the different tests, particularly if those tests involved assessments of uh, like speed and power, or things that involve strength training, or challenge, or competition. Women tended to be more interested in uh, measurements of flexibility, doing yoga, stretching exercise, group aerobics exercise. And then there were a host of things that were not different, but there were many differences. Um, some of the other differences also important to point out is uh, that women tended to be less uh, willing to undergo procedures that involve uh, like pain and discomfort. We also asked them about you know, their uh, factors that might prevent them or that they contemplate when deciding to participate. And we asked them about 15 or 16 different items, and on not a single one of them did men score higher than women. So women were basically more... Um, concerned or sort of conscientious about their participation. So uh, things like the anxiety they might feel during testing or the pain or discomfort or side effects of the procedures. These are all things that women weighted more highly than men when considering whether they might participate in a study. So we published those results um, last year. So that data has been available. And in addition to that, the overall topic of interest and willingness to participate in studies uh, has been studied since at least the 1960s. In particular, in the area of experimental psychology, they were interested to figure out whether um, sex or gender was a factor that influenced the decision to participate, and it does. And, uh, and there's all sorts of other um, studies out there that demonstrate that sometimes these sex differences do exist. The annoying thing is that in all of these papers that are coming out in exercise science journals right now about female underrepresentation is that they absolutely refuse to say anything about this topic of a potential sex difference in interest and willingness to participate. I think for the most part, they're just simply unaware that this is a thing because there just continues to be this narrative that everything, all group differences are explained by structural or systemic factors. Um, things like discrimination and bias, for example. So in this case, what the authors are attributing the, different, the difference in represent, representation to are different sort of structural factors. Um, and one of the other uh, key findings from their study was that they found that uh, when a research study was led by a female investigator or author, there tended to be more female participants. And I'll come back to that finding in just a second. Okay, so what did our letter say and what was it all about? So our letter was titled, 
Women and men report unequal interest in participating in exercise research. And their reply was titled, Reply to Nuzo Indiner, Investigator Bias is a Potent Influence on the Underrepresentation of Women Research Participants in Biomedical Research. So in our letter, all we did was we restated our survey findings and we said, hey, um, you need to consider potential sex difference in interest and willingness to participate. You can't just go on publishing on this topic and keep saying that it's always um, sort of these top-down factors. So, for example, the investigator purposely excluding women for various uh, reasons could be due to concerns about the menstrual cycle confounding the study results or fear of uh, the woman maybe being uh, pregnant and don't want to harm the fetus. And there are um, circumstances like that that do happen. The issue that I have with this line of research is just the complete refusal to acknowledge any other potential causal factor that might go in the, into explaining it. So I'm not saying that interest and willingness explains everything, but to completely ignore it is just not, um, is not proper science. So, um, so they replied back to us. So the way that our letter exchange works in the academic literature is that we write in a letter and then they have a chance to reply. And usually the, the letter and the reply are limited to 500 words. And then that's the end of the exchange. Very rarely do editors allow for there to be more exchange than that because you could just keep going back and forth at each other for a really long time. And so that is the reason why I'm doing this here. This is essentially my response to their response. So what I'm going to do is just um, read a couple of main points or sentences that, uh, that were in their letter, and I'm going to address those. Um, the first thing I want to mention is that their, uh, their paper uh, and the reply had, I believe, 13 authors. This is a, an example. This is a side issue, but I think it's important to recognize. This is an example of what I would consider authorship inflation or hyper-authorship. Um, this is not specific to these particular types of papers on this topic. It's, a, it's just a uh, sort of a widespread problem in academia right now. But essentially what it represents is people being on a paper as authors that don't really deserve to be on it. And it is uh, sometimes tricky to know where to draw the line with authorship. There are guidelines out there. But I will say that, yes, I understand that it would take time to go through many um, journal issues and papers and tally up numbers. But whether it takes 13 people to complete that job of downloading papers and going through them and tallying up the number of male and female participants, um, I think that's uh, a very questionable practice to have 13 authors on a paper like that. So that's the first point I want to make. Um, so, okay, let's go to uh, the first quote from their uh from their letter. So this, this is sort of in the middle of paragraph one. This is uh, what they're saying. Quote, their survey, so they're referring to the survey that uh, Rob Diener and I conducted, their survey in which women responded at rates approximately two and a half times higher than males appears to be a narrow pool of potential participants 
at least for 65% of their sample who were undergraduate psychology students, end quote. So what they're doing here is they're referring back to the survey that Rob and I conducted, and they are saying that women responded at a rate of about two and a half times that of males. So what they're saying overall is that we have a quirky sample. So the sample that Rob and I got, we, we sent out the survey to two different groups of people. So one was just posted online for anyone who had access to it to respond to. That can be um, problematic in terms of getting a biased sample. So then what we did was we uh, conducted the same exact survey, but we did it in a very more, like more controlled uh, environment. So we did it at the psychology department at Grand Valley State University, where we had about 600 uh, psychology students um, answer the survey. Now, if you know anything about the field of psychology and, uh, and the course of uh, psychology at universities, it is a female-dominated course and profession. And as a consequence, when you survey uh, a large group of psychology students, you get a greater proportion of female than male participants. The irony in their critique is that they are essentially critiquing us for surveying a lot of women. And the whole point of all of their research is to say that there are not enough female participants in exercise and sports science research. So they are unable to see the irony in in the criticism that they're levying against us and that we had a disproportionate number of um, females compared to males. So I thought that was... Um, kind of an interesting point for them to make. Um, yeah, unfortunately, what they what they missed in kind of making that silly criticism is the fact that we, Rob and I, were the first ones to give this sort of thing a go, where we actually ask people about their interest and willingness to participate in exercise science studies. No one, no one else has ever conducted a survey like that, and um, and we were the first to do that. And the thing is, the result that we have from that survey can actually be used to inform a lot of the concerns uh, that these researchers have. So, for example, we asked people about the factors that might kind of inhibit their participation or what what is it that you think about before you go to participate. And it turns out that women are, uh, they consider a larger number of factors to, to a greater degree. Well, if you know that and you want to recruit more, be able to recruit more female participants, for example, what you can do is on your study advertisements that you, that you post online or you post on bulletin boards, you can perhaps include information on there that you might think might make a, um, like a, a potential participant more comfortable with your study. So, for example, you might say something like, study procedures do not involve painful electrical stimulations or something to that effect. So what what's so silly about this criticism is that we were actually the first people to bother to ask women and men about these sorts of things, yet we're not really given any uh, credit for that advancement. Um, just a little bit of... Um, I, I meant to mention this earlier. The... 
lead or senior researcher involved in this particular paper that we are critiquing, Sandra Hunter, she is a very good scientist. She is very good. And she often studies sex differences and things like muscle um, fatigability. Sandra Hunter has also been pretty much the only person publishing on the biological basis of sex differences in athletic performance. She's come out with a couple of pieces now on that, uh, and that relates to the whole transgender issue. So I give Sandra Hunter a lot of credit, uh, not only for her previous uh, good scientific work, but also leading the way when it comes to um, publishing these uh, review papers that are essentially pushing back against the whole transgender thing, although it's, it's not stated so explicitly. However, that does not mean that she is correct in this particular domain. The other authors, the other 12 people, I have no idea who they are. I've never heard of these women before. I did a little bit of searching around uh, between the 12 other authors. I don't know, maybe a handful of publications between them. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention that, that um, Sandra Hunter is a very good scientist, but she is also getting into this whole area of um, underrepresentation. Okay, now back to their, to their letter. Um, next quote, quote, We assert that investigator bias is a more potent influence than women's interests or volunteer bias on the sex bias in biomedical research, end quote. Um, So what they're saying there is that they believe that fewer female participants in this line of research is due primarily to these top-down mechanisms so the investigator having some sort of bias or discrimination against women rather than sort of a bottom-up where it's the volunteer or the participant. So they're the volunteer's um, interests, right? And so what Rob and I are saying is you have to consider the volunteer as well. And they're coming out and saying, no, we think the investigator bias is a more potent influence. Now, they're not saying exactly what percentage they're sort of divvying up to the investigator being the influence versus the volunteer, and that makes it um, a bit tricky, but they did not bother to mention anything about what, what I've been calling sort of volunteer bias in their original paper. They are only now coming out and saying something because we push them on it. And one of the good things about this is that they have come out and said this more explicitly now, that they believe that investigator bias is a more potent influence. Before, that was always implied. Now that we've pushed them on it, um, they have come back and said, yes, in fact, we do believe it is basically the primary uh, driver. So it's good to just have that on uh, record. Okay, let's see. What else did I want to mention here? Um, Okay, another quote. So, quote, low participation of women in biomedical research delivers poor health outcomes, end quote. So, what they are getting on about here is about biomedical research uh, more broadly. And what they are suggesting is that due to a lack of 
relative lack of female participants, this then puts women in danger for poor health outcomes. Now, this sort of line of thinking would go something like this. This is one of the um, prime examples. So if you have primarily male participants and and you're doing some sort of drug study, you're figuring out the particular doses that are needed to cure some uh, condition, and you have only male participants, then when you go to prescribe that drug to women, you would be prescribing it based off of what you found in men, and that might not nece- that may not be uh, appropriate. And that is a very legitimate point, and that's that's a point that is often made by researchers in this um, area. And so that is why women should be included as participants in research studies, of course. But um, what they're doing here is a bit off base. So the first reason it's off is because in the United States, clinical trials that are funded by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, on the whole, um, they're required to have equal numbers of male and female participants. And I have recently posted at the newsletter data from the Office for uh, Research on Women's Health, which shows the proportion of male and female participants in NIH-funded studies over the past several years. And if you go back and you look at that post and you look at that graph, not only will you see that women have been adequately represented, but they've actually made up 55 to 60% of participants every single year. So that data exists, and that's, that's biomedical research more broadly. Now, that is only NIH-funded research, and there's a lot more research that goes on that isn't uh, NIH-funded. So most exercise science research is not NIH-funded. Um. So, first, that the, the first point to make there is that there are certain mechanisms in place that make sure that women are participants in research. Okay. The other thing that they're missing, they're talking about poor health outcomes. Uh, the women that publish in this area, I think, are completely unaware of poor health outcomes in men, including the, the life expectancy difference. So currently the life expectancy difference um, is around six years. So women live on average six years longer than men. Uh, men have worse health outcomes on a number of issues. Women have, of course, uh, particular sets of health issues that impact uh, women more than men. But there are substantial number of health issues impacting men right now. So they so so given that that is the case you can actually make the argument that there should be disproportionate numbers of participants in research studies so for example if if it is men that are much in need right now because of their shorter life expectancy and all sorts of other health issues then you might say it would be appropriate to have disproportionate number of of men in research studies because you're trying to help them resolve their um, health problems. But the researchers that publish in this area are just completely ignoring that, and that's that's really unfortunate. So they have ignored that here. 
Um, okay, next point. So one of the uh, main findings from their study was that there tended to be more female participants when the study was led by a female researcher. And so this then leads to that whole line of argument that, oh, there needs to be more uh, opportunities for women to be professors and to climb the ranks and all of this other stuff and support women and their career trajectories and all of that stuff. Because when you do that, then they'll be the researchers and they'll bring in more female participants and that will resolve this issue. Okay, one thing I want to point out about this is that um, the data are showing when a female leads the group, leads the paper, there's more female participants. And that's something that I've noticed anecdotally as well. But what that suggests is that women researchers just need to do research. So you just need to get in the lab. You need to come up with a new idea. You need to collect the data, get in the lab, collect the data, analyze the data. Then you need to write up the results into a manuscript, and then you need to send that in for peer review. And then you have to go through your edits uh, and revisions and get that published. That takes a lot of work. And so if this is what the correlation is, more female researchers equals more female participants, then get into the lab and do research. That is what guys have been doing for decades. One of the unfortunate things about this whole narrative is just the historical ignorance and the lack of appreciation for what men have done over the decades in this area. So men have taken a lot of risks along the way, which are not recognized as risks because no, we no longer think of them as that. But many, many years ago, exercise, vigorous exercise, exercise until exhaustion would have thought to have been dangerous or risky. It could be bad for your heart. You might have a heart attack. Uh, lifting weights used to be thought of as something that would cause injury. It was unsafe to do that. Um, you know, you might throw your back out or might hurt your knee or if you're running, you know, running's bad for your knees, okay? So all these sorts of things. Uh, it is science over the past several decades that's shown these things to be mostly untrue. And it has mostly been men leading the way. There are many exceptions. There's a lot of good and talented female researchers out there and I've worked with many of them and I like working with many of them. But the reality is that with a lot of early exercise science research, it was men doing and leading the way. And at certain times, they would have just grabbed their buddy off to the side, brought him into the lab, and done some testing on each other. And that's where you get to a scenario where you end up having sometimes more male participants. There was nothing... Um, nothing particularly evil about it. They were just trying to do their job. They were just trying to, to learn about the human body. And also, like I mentioned, back then, there would have been some um, a lack of clarity on the dangers of exercise, right? That was all still getting figured out. But then you have to think about all the different procedures they would have 
um, gone through. So guys taking muscle biopsies on each other and doing electrical stimulations and, you know, exercising until exhaustion and all sorts of things. And it would have been a lot of men undergoing all that. So one thing that annoys me about a lot of this literature right now is just this lack of appreciation for what men have done over the years, which is essentially sort of carve out this whole area of study. And uh, and now there is a sort of uh, almost a backlash against men for, for some reason, as if they were doing something very wrong along the way. So um, those are my responses to just a couple of points uh, that are... Uh, that were in this uh, letter. I recently saw another paper come out on the same sort of topic. I was in a sports psychology journal where they went through and they tallied up numbers of male and female participants. So um, you will probably um, continue to see more of these papers come out in 2024. What the researchers will do is they will carve out their niche area of interest and go through the literature and tally up. One thing to be aware of is that they are sort of pre-selecting these areas, uh, most likely uh, thinking or knowing that they'll find a situation in which there are fewer female participants. They don't ever seem to bother to look for areas where there might be more female participants. So let me give you an example. One would be uh, survey or questionnaire data within the field. Um, the reason why you would hypothesize there would be more female participants in exercise survey or questionnaire studies is because it's been known for many, many years that women are more likely to fill out surveys than are men. In fact, in the survey study that myself and Rob Diener published last year, we asked men and women about their willingness to fill out an a survey about exercise, and women were much more likely to want to do that than were men. So you would then expect if you did sort of an audit of the exercise literature that involved uh, surveys or questionnaires about people's preferences for exercise and barriers and limitations and motivators to exercise, that you might find more female participants. So we'll see if someone bothers to do that audit of literature. Another area where you might find a difference, um, well, first of all, is in specific health conditions. So a, a health condition that might affect a woman more than a man, so eating disorders, for example, uh, pain conditions, uh, arthritis conditions, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, you are likely to find more female participants there. But you're probably not going to see too many audits of that literature because that wouldn't fit the narrative. And a final one is uh, related to older adults. Um, the reason why you might find more female than male participants in exercise for the elderly studies is because a lot of the guys are already dead. And that is something that is not well understood. If you appreciated this content, please consider supporting the Newsell Letter with a one-time or recurring donation. 
Your support is greatly appreciated. It helps me to continue to work on independent research projects and fight for more evidence-based discourse. To donate, click the donor box logo. In two simple steps, you can donate using Apple Pay, PayPal, or another service. Thank you.